0: Go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of Romans, chapter 3. And uh, we're incredibly thankful that you're here with us this morning. If you are visiting, you came on a a really, really special morning historically. This is uh, what we call Reformation Sunday. And it's particularly special because uh, in in just a couple of days, October 31st, it marks the 500th anniversary of uh, the beginning, so to speak, of the Reformation, the Reformation is an incredibly important part of our history, and we're really devoting this morning to a, a more in-depth study of the Reformation. So this is a really unusual Sunday. If you are new, uh, it's, it's going to be very different. This is a kind of a, a strange blend between a history lecture, don't, don't leave and uh, a biography, and, and a sermon kind of all mashed into one, but I hope and pray that it will be incredibly helpful for you as we reflect upon our history as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ. It's important to, to recognize first, I want you to, to view this morning through this grid. This is my prayer for you this morning. Listen, our God is the God of all history. Amen. Our God is sovereign over all creation and that means he is sovereign over all of history and that means this, that God has been working masterfully in all of history to accomplish, accomplish his good will and his good purposes. And so as we look at our history, we need to see this. We need to see that our God shows himself repeatedly, sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes in not so subtle ways, to be the God who is working all things according to the counsel of his will. God cares deeply about the truth. He cares deeply about the church that he bought with his own blood, the blood of his own son. And this morning, as we consider the Reformation, my hope is that you see God's love for the church and God's love for the truth and for the gospel in a whole new way. And that really enlivens your heart, refreshes your heart, and it stirs your heart with greater love for the very same things that the heart of God loves why is it necessary to care about what happened 500 years ago? Why devote a whole message to the topic of the Reformation? I think that's a really fair question, but the very need to even ask it may reflect why in fact it's so necessary. I'm convinced that in increasing measure there are a few Christians today who truly understand what the Reformation was, why it was necessary, and why it actually matters for us today. Consider for a second um, the historical stamp that's been placed upon this day and this movement. It is called by historians the Protestant Reformation. Now just consider both of those words for a minute. The idea of something being uh, reformed is at the very heart of what took place 500 years ago. That word is so helpful. You see, for something to be reformed, it must first be formed, right? It has to be formed into something that it was designed to be. And then over time, it has to be deformed. It has to become something other than what it was designed and created and intended to be, so that eventually it can then become reformed back into what it was created to be. The word Protestant is incredibly important in this conversation. Its root is to protest, And that's what happened 500 years ago. There was a desire to reform what had been so deeply deformed and maligned and distorted. And there was a protest specifically against the abuses of this deformed faith of the day. That's what happened in 1517 and the years that followed. And what happened then is a reminder for us, the church today, that the truth of God's word is always under attack. And it must be, it must be very carefully preserved, protected, and proclaimed with clarity and with conviction. I, I want to just give you a few texts that help set the stage. And this is a bit of an extended introduction before we jump in. But I want you to see um, the verse behind me on the screen, 1 Timothy three fifteen. A reminder of what the church is to be. Paul writes these words. He says, if I delay, you may know, he writes to Timothy, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Paul writes to Timothy, and he reminds Timothy that the church of Jesus Christ, this institution that God has created, that he calls his bride, his body, his family, This is the place that he has deposited the truth of the gospel and the word of God into. And in so doing, the church becomes the pillar and the buttress. It becomes the place where the truth is protected, preserved, proclaimed. This place here is the place where we fight for and defend the truth of Jesus Christ. It is the church of the living God. But what's so fascinating, that Paul wrote this in the first century to Timothy, who was pastor in the church, and it's interesting, if you look at the Bible, a short time after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the apostles began writing what we have in front of us as the New Testament scriptures. And in the New Testament, there are countless warnings that affirm and remind us of the danger of the truth being distorted by false prophets, false teachers, many anti-Christs who long to come and attack and malign and steal and kill and destroy the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, in, it's incredible to look at the, the word of God because in the scriptures we see that even in the first century the first century, the truth was already being distorted amongst genuine Christians and genuine churches. In fact, Paul has to write these words to the church in Galatia in Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. He says this to the church. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Even then, Paul has to write to warn genuine Christians and genuine churches that the truth is under assault, and you must maintain and hold fast to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people who want to distort it. And one of the most stunning warnings in the New Testament is found in the the, the little book, the little epistle of Jude. Jude writes in the very first few verses he says this beloved although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ this is an astonishing warning Here's Jude. He's writing to the church, and as he starts to write to the church, he says, I wanted to write uh, to to celebrate our common salvation, but as I looked at the landscape of the church and what's happening already in, in the church of Jesus Christ, I found it necessary to write to you to tell you, listen, as much as I want to celebrate our common salvation, you and I need to stand firm and contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's just stunning warnings, and the New Testament is replete with these kind of warnings. The truth, listen, here's what we need to learn from this. The truth, and therefore the church, can quickly become deformed. The clear prophetic warnings of Scripture at some point in history were dismissed. The church began to drift into a fog of moral and doctrinal confusion. The church became a political institution that was being used to wield power and control. What was once the pillar and buttress of the truth became the safe haven for sin and a factory of corruption. But in 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church wall in Wittenberg, Germany, and he ignited in that moment a reformation that would birth a revival of biblical Christianity and gospel advance like the world hadn't seen since the first century. These 95 theses were complaints. Complaints against the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church that was the only church of the day. They were an invitation to public dialogue and dispute regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, what he was doing in nailing those 95 theses to the wall, you know, you can think of it like a bulletin board. That's what this wall was. This was common practice where people would go up and post things on this wall to be discussed and disputed. Think of it kind of like a blog post put out there for everybody to read for everybody to begin to discuss the issues and so he puts out these these issues as an invitation to dispute and discuss what he saw was so wrong with the church What's so fascinating is that what happened there was an explosion following this that was unprecedented in human history. You see, Luther's students took down the 95 Theses, and they began to copy them by hand and then run them through the newly designed and newly birthed printing press. You just think of the sovereignty of God in all of this. Some people ask, well, were people, tr- people trying to reform the church before Martin Luther? The answer is yes. There are what are called pre-reformers, those who tried to lodge an assault against the system that was corrupt and immoral. But they never got much traction, they never made much progress, why, why is that? Because of this right here, the printing press invented around 50 years earlier than Martin Luther's reformation stance nailing those 95 theses. You can think of it like this, the birth of the printing press is the equivalent in our day to the birth of the internet. All of a sudden, information could be copied down in mass form and spread across not only Europe, but eventually the entire world. What resulted was called the Protestant Reformation, which was a protest, again, against the moral and, more importantly, the theological Abuses of the Roman Catholic Church that had distorted the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That was what was at stake. That was why Luther did what he did. The Latin phrase, post tenebra lux, was adopted in Geneva as the motto of the Reformation. It means this light after darkness. You see, after nearly a thousand years, think about this, a thousand years of oppressive church rule and moral perversion, which is, by the way, aptly named the Dark Ages, the Reformation brought to light the truths of biblical Christianity, literally rescuing the gospel from obscurity. Darkness soon gave way to the penetrating light of the gospel. Church was changed in that moment. Society was awakened. Nations were aroused. The word of God was translated into the common language of the people like it had never been before. Christian schools were launched, modern missions were birthed, the Bible was studied like never before in history, commentaries were written, seminaries were started, congregational singing was revived, countless multitudes were brought into the kingdom of God. All of this, and the reason we're sitting here today, all of this a result of the Protestant Reformation. Because on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And at the very heart, really the, the central nerve of the Reformation, are, what are what's known as the five solas. Sola in Latin means alone. This really is the heart of of the Protestant Reformation, this idea of alone, these five solas, they framed the Protestant Reformation and they brought the church back to the gospel and as long as God continues to build his church, these five solas will stand at the center. They always have and they always will be at the center of every true faithful church of Jesus Christ. See, what are the five solas? Sola Scriptura, Solus Christus, sola gratia, sola fide, and soli deo gloria. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. These defined the Protestant Reformation and they still and always will define the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look down with me at Romans chapter three, verse 19 through 26. It's a long setup, right? Let's get into the word a little bit here. Romans chapter 3, 19 through 26, really highlights so much of what was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. So let's read it together, and then we're going to look at each of the five solas uh, through the grid of Martin Luther. Paul writes these words, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Sola fide is called the material principle because it involves the very matter of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the very substance of the gospel or the heart of the gospel. Faith is Alone is the core biblical teaching that salvation comes to the sinner exclusively by faith alone. The book of Romans tells us that justification, as we've just read, is by faith. The real question that Sola Fide answers is this what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? It is the most important question the church can address and the church can answer. You see, for Martin Luther, this was the paramount issue in his own heart, in his own life. It was a personal struggle. In fact, you could argue that it was the chief struggle of his life in the most formative years of his life. Martin was sent away to school at the University of Erfurt in Germany to study law. Upon graduating in 1505, at the age of 21 with both a bachelor's and master's degree, putting us all to shame, Martin Luther was ready to take the study of law by storm, but it would be the Lord who would take Martin Luther by storm. See, only a few days after his graduation, he was returning home when he was caught in this monstrous monstrous thunderstorm, an incredible electrical storm, fearing for his life Luther was prone to see every event in his life as having spiritual significance. He saw the thunderstorm raging around him, and he saw and believed that it was nothing less than God unleashing judgment upon his soul for something that he had done. Suddenly, a bolt of lightning pierced the clouds and knocked him to the ground, and in sheer terror, Martin cried out, Help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk! Two weeks later, he held true to this promise he made. Much to his father's chagrin, he announced that he was giving up his doctrinal studies in law to become a monk. He chose one of the strict sects of of, of the monk orders, and he joined the Augustinian order. He began the process hoping that his devotion to the monastic life, a life of deprivation, giving up so much, a life of sacrifice, hoping desperately that it would earn him and and ensure for him a life of peace. He lived constantly under the fear of God's wrath and God's anger, believing that at any moment God would judge him. He was determined to keep the requirements of the monastic life in an attempt to earn his salvation. and He commented on his days, uh, later in life, he commented on his days in the monastery. He would write these words, if any monk ever got to heaven by monkery, then I should have made it. I'm not gonna lie, I put that quote in there just because of the word monkery. (laughs) That's such a good word. Luther was obsessive, he was unrelenting and legalistic in his his regimented pursuit of righteousness, of favor before God. He punished his body, he deprived himself of worldly comforts, he slept in snowstorms without a blanket, in some way believing he could earn eternal salvation through his good works. Just a little bit more, a little bit more difficult, a little bit harder, a little bit more painful, and maybe God will accept me and not unleash his wrath upon me. He he said these words, he said, I tortured myself, and I inflicted upon myself such pain as I would never inflict again, even if I could. If I had lasted much longer, I would have killed myself with vigils, praying, reading, and other labors. Did you notice there that even in his good works, like praying and reading things that are genuinely good, he believed he could earn his way to God and earn the favor of God. All of this, however, only led to intensified guilt over his sin. It never appeased his conscience, he never felt like he did enough to be accepted by God. Instead, the more he tried to accumulate his own works righteousness, the more distant he felt from God. The more he sought to keep the law, the more he saw how impossible perfection was before a holy and righteous God. He only sensed God's holy anger towards sin and he never sensed God's divine love towards him. Luther couldn't escape the reality of his own condition. It plagued him, and he cried out, oh, my sins, my sins. He was absolutely hysterical over his sins, and he labored tirelessly to confess each and every sin. It wasn't uncommon for Luther to spend hours each and every day confessing his sins, sometimes up to six hours in a confessional booth. Can you imagine listening to that? He just, he he couldn't confess enough. Every sin led to a deeper sin, and then a deeper sin, and then he would feel guilt and shame because he couldn't remember any more sins. At one point, his mentor and his confessor, John Van Stoppitz, after six hours told him, man, God is not angry with you, you are angry. Don't you know that God commands you to hope? Look here, if you're going to confess so much, why don't you go do something worth confessing? Kill your father or mother, commit adultery, quit coming here with such flumery and fake sins. But he couldn't, he couldn't get rid of the guilt, he couldn't get rid of the shame, all he did was look at his heart and look at his life and he saw sin, 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 and he knew, he knew rightly that he could not stand before a holy God based on his own merit and favor. And in 1513, he began to teach the word of God. He had become a priest, been ordained as a priest, and he had assumed at that point the chair of biblical studies at the University of Wittenberg. And he taught through three books in particular that God really used to start to shape his life and reorient his thinking. He taught through the book of Psalms, and then he taught through the book of Romans, and then he taught through the book of Galatians. And the more he studied these, the less peace he had in his heart and soul, as he was becoming weary of his search and through his own efforts to find perfection before a holy God, he he saw how evasive that was, how impossible it was. Finally, Luther had what is called his tower experience, in which he writes these words. He said, I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans. Romans. But thus far, there had stood in my way, not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word, which is in chapter one. You can go ahead and put up Romans 117. For in it, the righteousness, or you can translate, the justice of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteousness or just shall live by faith. The idea there, the just or the righteous, those who have been made right, declared innocent before God, He looked at this, and he couldn't wrap his head around this. He says, I hated the word justice of God, which I took to mean that justice by which God is just and by which he punishes sinners and the unjust. Although, he says, a blameless monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in my conscience, and no confidence that my merit would appease God. And he says this, this is so interesting. He says, I did not love, no, rather I hated the just God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. I constantly badgered St. Paul about the spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. That's a great principle. The justice of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. He says, I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God, the merciful God justifies us by faith. All at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. I immediately saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. I exalted this sweetest word of mine, the justice of God, with as much love as before. I had hated it with hate. So all of a sudden, he understood that it wasn't his own good works that made him right with God. He recognized from the context of Scripture that only God could make us right with him, and our faith, is the vehicle by which we can be made right with God. I I love how Luther framed this. He says about this, uh, this this section, he says, this passage became for me a gateway to heaven. It it just flung the gates of heaven open where he was rattling the gates before in his own effort to get in. All of a sudden he saw that it is God's mercy and grace that he flings the gate open. He justifies us by faith. And it was his study in Romans that he came to see that the righteousness of God is not something that can be earned by the sinner. It's not a reward for those trying to merit God's favor. It is a gift for the guilty. It is the free gift that is given to all those who would humble themselves and come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Luther said that this was an alien righteousness A righteousness that must be brought to the sinner from outside the sinner. You see the difference? Where before he thought he could create the righteousness, earn the righteousness, he saw that this righteousness had to be imputed to him, to his account. It had to be gifted to him, given to him. And with this very simple discovery, that this imputed righteousness comes by faith alone, the truth of the gospel that alone can save was thrust into the very center of the public arena. It was a recovery of faith in Christ alone. By the way, at the time, the Catholic Church, as with all of these solas, they believed in faith, they believed in grace, they believed in Christ, they believed in scripture, they believed in God's glory. That The significant distinction is that it wasn't alone. It was faith plus works And here we see that this recovery of faith in Christ alone was a repudiation of any human effort in salvation. It was a rejection of anything that could be added to Christ in order to commend ourselves to God. It was an announcement that to be right with God is through the work of Christ, and it must be given as a gift and received exclusively by faith. Listen, for a thousand years, think about this, for a thousand years, this truth, for the most part, had been obscured and corrupted. And at this point in history, the gospel was recovered and thrust back into the spotlight by the grace of God. Secondly, sola Christus, solus Christus. And just look back at Romans 3, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in the justifier, catch this, of the one who has faith in Jesus. In Jesus, Christ alone. You see, this drives right into the heart of the debate. For Christ himself and alone must be the only, the sole object of our faith. For Christ alone, through his death upon the cross, has provided the only sufficient atonement to make a covering for our sins. To add anything to Christ's work is to suggest that Christ's work was not enough. It was not sufficient. Luther saw this as blasphemous, and he recovered for the church from the Bible, the centrality of the person and the work of Jesus Christ in redemption. He stripped away various uh, medieval errors and distortions so that Jesus shone clearly as the light of the world. As John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. It is exclusively and only through Jesus Christ. And so the reformers set out to address the issue of the sufficiency of the work of Christ. Really, they they answered, they asked and answered this question: Is there anything else needed? Is there anything else that's needed to make me right with God? Anything else that must be done? It's important to remember that the medieval church, the Roman Catholic church, taught that faith in Christ was to be exercised. But again, let me just clarify this. But it was not alone. The Roman Catholic church is a complex system. It's full of nuances. But what brought this issue to the surface was the Roman Catholic belief that there exists a number of other persons and processes to aid in the salvation of the believer. You see, after posting his 95 theses, Luther began to engage in a number of debates with the the church leaders at the time, a lot of discussions, a lot of back and forth in their writing. In October 1520, the Pope, uh, following one of these debates, he issued a papal bull. A papal bull is a a papal seal, which uh, demonstrates that it has the authority of the Pope that cannot be rejected, it must be obeyed. So in this papal bull, it demanded that Luther recant or face excommunication out of the Roman Catholic Church. It was amidst this that Luther wrote three New York Times bestseller books. I believe it was around back then. He penned three books that had a massive impact on the landscape of the church. One of the church, one of the books, excuse me, was entitled "The Babylonian Captivity of the Church," and in it, he used analogy to paint this picture of what was happening. Luther attacked in this the the uh, jugular vein of the Roman Catholic Church, if you will, that the priesthood, the sacramental or sacrodotal system by which um, the church brought every single act under the sacramental power of the priest. This sacerdotal system Luther represented in his book as the Babylonian captivity of the church. So, so he looks at this system and these rules and traditions, extra biblical, and he says this system is the Babylonian captivity of the church. It has enslaved the church. It's keeping people in bondage that they need to be released from. And in this book, not only did he look at the sacerdotal system as the Babylonian captivity of the church, he looked at the church of Rome, and particularly the pope, as the whore of Babylon. Let me just tell you, that did not go over well. The Roman Catholic Church had established seven sacraments, you may have heard of them by which, you may not know this, by which God's grace or favor can be merited or earned. You see, if you wanted favor from God, you must participate in these seven sacraments. They're essential for you to receive God's favor especially even as it relates to salvation. And here's what they are if if you're not aware of them. Um, The first is baptism as an infant. The second one is confirmation as a youth. The third is marriage as an adult. The fourth is extreme unction on deathbed, of the last rites. The fifth is the taking of mass regularly. And the sixth is penance that is received from the priest, which is the seventh one, by the way, the holy orders. Think of the confessional booth. And each of these things was seen as conveying the grace of salvation to the sinner. And Luther attacked the very evil of the priesthood and the corruption of the gospel of Christ in this system. He saw that it undermined the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It added things that must be done and thereby said that Christ is not sufficient. Luther studied the Bible and he said, no, all saving grace comes from Christ alone. That would be a great place for an amen. That's it. Only from Christ. Independent of the priesthood, independent of the sacerdotal system, independent of all rites and rituals, saving grace comes directly through Christ alone. I love what Luther said. He said these words. He said, the cross is our theology. It sounds so much like the apostle Paul who said, I declare to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he said, the believers should not look to a priest or a system or a sacrament, that the Lord's table does not become the literal body and blood of Jesus, thereby re-sacrificing Christ over and over again, directly contradicting the word of God. And with this whole attack, listen, at the heart of this jugular vein, listen, the Roman Catholic system of works began to come tumbling down before their very eyes. The priesthood, the mass of sacrifice, the church is the sole dispenser of grace. All of this was undone as the truth of Christ was preached by the reformers and as they taught that saving grace comes to each believer immediately through Christ and through no man mediator, not the priest, not the pope, but that each sinner is to go directly to Christ to confess their sins to Christ and to believe upon Christ for he and he alone is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Later on in his life, Luther, looking back at how he had preached the gospel, would say these words. He said, I have taught you Christ purely, simply, and without adulteration. And he went on to say this, that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is a priest unto God priest in the Old Testament, especially, was somebody who had direct access to God on behalf of the people of God. And here, Luther argued that the Bible teaches that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus becomes a priest unto God. They have immediate and direct access to come right into the throne room of Almighty God, there's no need to go through Mary, there's no need to go through a pope or a priest to get to God. Every believer has been made a priest in the kingdom of God with direct access to the throne of grace. You don't have to get the ear of Mary, you don't have to pray to a saint. You can go to the one who's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Right. This is the awesome privilege that was reco- listen, this was lost. It was veiled. There is no priesthood, but the priesthood of every believer. And he appealed, interestingly, to Revelation 21, verse 6. To prove this point, that this beautiful picture of the access to God in the heavenly places. Listen, and he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You see that? He's like, you don't need to request anything from anybody else. God says, come to me, and I will give you everything you need. Every true believer is a priest unto God and has no need of any priest to take him by the hand and walk him into the presence of God. Jesus has done that already for us. And any obstacle to this, Luther argued, was a violation of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. He says that this is that mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours but Christ's and the righteousness of Christ is not Christ's but ours. The great exchange of the cross. He receives the worst about me, I the best of him. Can you just stop and just sit on that for just a second? We know this great exchange. We preach it all the time, but we lose sometimes the wonder of this. He receives, think about this. Jesus, I I don't know how you walked in here today. I don't know what kind of sins you struggle with in your life or you will struggle with in your life. I don't know your past, your present, or your future necessarily. Listen, Listen, but Jesus Christ on the cross took the worst of you. And God took the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and He gave you the best of Christ. So you stand not with your own filth before a holy God. You stand clothed in Jesus Christ. This is hope, wasn't to motivate us to live this morning for Jesus Christ, to not live in our guilt and shame. No longer, and what we do this so often as believers. We, we walk in, we struggle with sin, we we still feel the shame and guilt. When Jesus says, "I've paid it all," walk in freedom. Freedom, sin no more. Christ has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us and fill us with it, and he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. This, this is the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, the doctrine, this is known as the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. He took our punishment. He was our substitute, and he atoned for our sins. He paid the price in full. This is important because this is under attack. You say, does the Reformation matter? Is the Reformation over? No, because this doctrine right here is still under attack in churches today that would claim to be evangelical. Any any gospel without substitutionary atonement at the heart of it is no gospel at all. It is a fake, it is a fraud, it is a gospel stripped of its power and efficacy. It is a gospel that is weak and frail and can save no one. The Bible says, and Luther propped this up so beautifully, Christ is the radiance of God's glory. And he is the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification for sins, I love that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The work was completed, it was finished, so no human effort in any way, shape, or form can accomplish any more of your salvation. Jesus finished it. Only Christ, and only Christ alone is necessary for salvation third, sola scriptura. Let me remind you of 2 Timothy 3, 16, which says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It literally is breathed from the mouth of God. It is inspired. It is divine. Sola scriptura, or scripture alone, is called the formal principle because it gave form to everything. It provided the structure to make all of these arguments In Luther's day, the authority of the church and the pope were not simply on par with, but above the scriptures. Now, I just want to make a a point of distinction or clarification here. There are a lot of people who ask, um, what is at the very heart of the the Reformation? Like, What's the point, the principle maybe that matters most? Some people argue that it's justification by faith alone that really is is at the center of the, the argument. Here's where I believe that the heart of the argument lies. It is over authority, The primary issue in the Reformation was the issue of authority. Who is it that has the right to tell us what to believe? And it was sola scriptura that then became the driving force that propelled the Reformation forward because of its focus on authority. There was no controversy, by the way, between Luther and the Roman Catholic Church at this time concerning the inspiration of Scripture. In fact, the the Council of Trent, which uh, occurred shortly after the Reformation, um, it was a a meeting of the the Catholics uh, at the time who were um, discussing and wrestling through the Reformation positions, the doctrinal positions. Uh, They gathered together in what's called the Council of Trent, and here's what they did. They condemned the Reformation positions. Everything we've discussed and everything we're going to continue to discuss, they looked at them and they said, nope, wrong, 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 wrong. We're digging in, we're, we're holding our ground They went so far, though, in this Council of Trent, just to show you how much alignment Luther kind of had in terms of believing the inspiration of Scripture with the Catholic Church, they went so far in this document from the Council of Trent to say that the Spirit actually dictated the very words of the apostles. So they both held to the inerrancy of Scripture, but the real question had to do with the relationship of inspired Scripture to tradition. In other words, is it Scripture alone that's God's inspired word that's inerrant, Or are there other things that we should turn to that have equal footing or maybe even elevated above the word of God? What is the source and norm for faith and practice? Is it the word of God with something else? Could the Pope say truly that his words are equal to those of Peter and Paul as we find them in scripture? Are the councils infallible in the same way as the scripture's? You see, whatever the Pope teaches or commands, uh, ex cathedra, which is Latin for from the chair, even if it's not based on scripture, it is to be believed by all Christians everywhere as necessary for salvation. This is current, still, current uh, teaching in the Catholic Church. By the way, the, the first Vatican Council in 1870 affirmed and decreed that the Pope, in speaking from his chair, is speaking on behalf of God and thereby his words are infallible. Luther's defense of sola scriptura was condemned as schismatic. He was seen as the problem. But Luther's problem with the Roman Catholic Church was its corruptions of scriptural faith by the addition of doctrines and practices and rituals and sacraments and ceremonies. Medieval popes increasingly held that they alone were endowed with the Holy Spirit in such a way as to be preserved from error in judgments. Wouldn't you love to be able to claim that? They were taught and were teaching that they alone had the authority, that the authority lay exclusively in the hands of the Pope, the authority to interpret scriptures, the authority to interpret church tradition, the authority to interpret church fathers and church councils. He alone had the power to formulate new doctrines that were outside of scripture. You say, is, this, is this really what they believe? Yeah, it actually happened three weeks ago in the Catholic Church. The Pope declared new doctrine. They believed that the Pope had the power to grant and the authority to grant indulgences and forgiveness of sins at a price. They believed that the Pope alone held the keys to the kingdom of heaven. But Luther believed that all authority in the church lay in the written scripture alone. It must rest upon the written word of God, Luther argued. He, he rejected the supposed apostolic succession of the pope that they had wrongly grounded in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. They wrongly believed that meant that Peter was the first pope, and therefore, every line follow, everyone in the line following Peter had the same kind of authority. In July 1519, during one of those debates I was telling you about, it was called the Leipzig Disputation, Luther responded to John Eck, who was sent by the Pope to defend the Roman Catholic teachings. In this debate, this disputation, John Eck attacked Luther for not upholding the authority of the Pope and appealing only to Scripture. He attacked Luther. He said, you're, you're crazy. You can't just hold to the Scriptures. You, you have to appeal to the authority of the Pope as well. And if one of the two conflict, then the Pope is right. Luther's response is amazing. He says this, he says, "'A simple layman armed with the Scripture "'is to be believed above a pope "'or a council without the Scripture.'" As for the popal, or papal excuse me, decretal on indulgences, he says this, I say that neither the pope nor the council can establish articles of faith. These must come from scripture. For the sake of scripture, we should reject popes and councils. You see what he did? He took the word of God, and he elevated it to his rightful place, and he said, listen, there is no one who sits above the word of God. This is the supreme authority. We all come under it. I, I don't care what kind of a pope you are or how many councils you have. Everything we have comes from this book. This is our authority. that papal bull I was telling you about that condemned Luther and his works, it demanded that he recant within 60 days. After this debate, 60 days, or else you're excommunicated from the church. By the way, at this time, Luther's life was on the line. He was being sovereignly protected and that's a whole other story that maybe I'll tell in a few weeks. But Luther, at this time, he defiantly refused to burn his writings. He was told, you've got to take your writings, burn them as a display of your repentance. And instead, he publicly burned the papal bull. <laughs> and here's what he said. He says this, this bull condemns Christ himself. The pope be condemned. The word of God be honored and upheld. And in April, he was summoned in 1521 to the Diet of Worms to assemble before the German nation. His 60 days were up, and there he stood before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and before all the princes and representatives of the church. This was a big deal. And he was examined and he was commanded to recant of all of his teachings. And the archbishop said to Luther, he said, I ask you, Luther, answer candidly and without horns. <laughs> Apparently, he was pretty vicious. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? And Luther famously, before all of the powers at be, said this, he said, "'Since then your majesty and your lordship "'require a simple answer. "'I will reply without horns and without teeth.'" Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant of anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. You see, Luther believed what every true church of Jesus Christ believes, that all authority in the church rests exclusively upon the written word of God and the sound interpretation of it. Neither the Pope nor the councils have the authority to speak for God. Only the Holy Spirit, making, or excuse me, speaking through his living word, recognizing the inherent authority of the Word of God, we too, as people of God in the Church of Jesus Christ, must affirm sola scriptura. Luther understood that this book contains everything for life and godliness. This book opens our eyes to the truth and the beauty of the gospel. This book opens our eyes to the truth and beauty of Jesus. And the Spirit of God takes this word which he wrote and he illuminates our hearts and minds. He opens us up and he grants to us everything necessary to life and godliness. This is what was recovered in the Reformation. Fourth, sola gratia, grace alone. In Luther's day and today, the church of Rome taught that salvation came by the grace of God. They did. But their understanding of grace was radically different than what the Bible teaches. You see, they saw grace as a thing or a force of divine power that is bestowed on believers to accomplish a spiritual task. Uh, one author put it like this, you can kind of consider it like a spiritual Red Bull, right? It gives you wings. You can do good stuff. And the Pope, the Pope had the authority to dispense this grace to those who wanted it and pursued it, and it saved only insofar, this is important to understand, it saved only insofar as it enabled people to become holy and thereby win or earn their salvation. The sacraments, those seven sacraments, were the means by which they obtained this saving grace. They they have they believe the, the church taught those sacraments have intrinsic spiritual power that works independently of the faith of the person receiving them. Simply put, grace is received in this system through the sacraments themselves. Again, a sacrament, it's like drinking a Red Bull. All of a sudden, you've got what you need. Finally, I, I, I'm, lowing, I'm running low on spiritual grace, so I'm going to go back to a sacrament and receive that. going you know, to fill me back up and empower me to do what I must do to earn God's favor. But you see, when you look at the Bible, grace is always, always displayed as unmerited favor extended to undeserving sinners. The Bible teaches that there is nothing we can do to merit our salvation. It is entirely a free gift of God. That's what makes salvation so beautiful. Grace alone was over the fact that saving grace was sovereign grace. In 1524, Erasmus, uh, another um, uh, Catholic at the time who attacked Luther, he published a book actually attacking Luther, This is seven years after Luther nailed the 95 Theses to that wall in Wittenberg, Germany. And and in this attack against Luther, in this book, he chose of all the issues to to attack, the issue of man's free will. The title of the book was helpfully called Discussion Concerning Free Will. (laughs) Pretty self-explanatory. But you see, this was shocking to so many people at Luther's time, because of all the issues to attack Luther on, he chose this one. I mean, he chose this as the key battlefront, the issue of free will. He attacked Luther's understanding in this, listen, of sin's impact upon the human will. This is so important to see. He's going after the human condition. Are we corrupted by sin to the point where we are totally spiritually dead, Or, as as Erasmus would argue, are we still actually inherently good, and can we? Do we have the ability and potential to do good on our own apart from God giving us life? Luther responded to this book with his all-time classic, The Bondage of the Will. And in the preface, he wrote a response to Erasmus. And here's what he said to him. This is so good. He says, you alone, in contrast with others, have attacked the real thing. That is the essential issue. You have not wearied me with those extraneous issues about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such like trifles. You and you alone have seen, this is it, this is so key, the hinge on which all turns. And aimed for the vital spot. More gratifying to me to deal with the real issue. You are attacking, in other words, the ability of the human will under its bondage to sin. And he looks at Erasmus and he says, thank you for not wasting my time dealing with all these other peripheral things. This is the heart of the issue. This is where we need to settle things. And this is the issue here. Listen, will Christianity be a religion of pure or of polluted grace? Is it gonna be part God and part man? Is man uh, some sort of co-savior by supplying the faith while God supplies the grace? This is the hinge on which it all turns, Luther said. That God supplies the forgiveness of sins through saving grace, but listen, God also supplies the gift of saving faith. That God supplies the gift of repentance and that man contributes nothing to his salvation. God supplies everything in and for salvation so that he might be exclusively the savior of lost sinners. I love how Jonathan Edwards says this, not not a reformer, um, but pretty close. Jonathan Edwards said it like this, he said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's so good. There's a part of us that wants to take credit for our salvation, even just a little bit. And this is exactly what Luther was attacking and J.I. Packer, uh, this is helpful, I think, in his introduction to the modern version of the bondage of the will. Here's what he says, an extended quote, so bear with me. He says, here was the crucial issue, not merely of justification, but also of faith. Whether in the last analysis, Christianity is a religion of utter reliance on God for salvation and all things necessary to it, or of self-reliance and self-effort. Justification by faith only is a truth that needs interpretation, he says. The principle of sola fide is not rightly understood till it is seen as anchored in the broader principle of sola gratia. What is the source and what is the status of faith? Is it the God-given means whereby the God-given justification is received or is it a condition of justification which is left to man to fulfill? Is it a part of God's gift of salvation or man's own contribution to salvation? Is it wholly of God or does it ultimately depend upon something we do for ourselves? Luther and the reformers all believed this. They all understood and believed this because of their firm belief in the scriptures and as they studied the word of God, they all came to this conclusion. They all believed that the saving faith necessary for salvation is a gift of God and that he gives it to his chosen at the proper time. Is all of grace. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 was one that Luther appealed to regularly. By the way, um, in the next few weeks, we're gonna get to this verse and dig into it more deeply, but one you're probably familiar with. Listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When Luther... And the other reformers read this verse and they interpreted it. They saw that not only the grace of righteousness and forgiveness, but also the gift of faith that must be given to the guilty sinner to believe upon Christ was all grace. Luther knew as he looked at this that it was God's doing that only God could grant us this gift. And he looked at the Pope and he understood that the Pope did not have the power to forgive sins. He had stated that clearly in his 95 theses. Elsewhere, he wrote that the, if the by the way, this is this is good. He, he wrote this that if the pope does have the power to release anyone from purgatory, why, in the name of love, does he not abolish purgatory by letting everyone out? Because he couldn't. In fact, no act of man can spring a soul from divine punishment and into the saving arms of God. Not by the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but only of God, John 1, 12. Luther was an unflinching defender of the grace of a sovereign God. He believed so firmly in sola gratia, grace alone, and he held so firmly to it, and he saw the beauty in it, he saw the humility it produced, he saw the worship it produced as he realized God's kindness in granting to him his salvation, not in part, but in whole. Fifth and finally, soli deo Gloria. Luther was consumed with the glory of God in every sphere of life. I think he probably loved Romans eleven, thirty-six, which says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In all doctrine, teaching, and practice, Luther believed that God deserved the glory and God deserved the, all the glory. See, Luther looked at all of the solas, and he believed that any departure from these solas was to rob God of his glory. So, in a sense, soli deo gloria wasn't a a, a dominating theme that was fought over like the other solas were, or principle. It was more of a byproduct of the other solas, It was an implied battleground, so to speak. In other words, Luther looked at these other solas and he said, listen, if any of these things is added to scripture, to Christ, to grace, and to faith, if anything is distorted there, then it all impacts this one key dominating theme, the glory of God alone. If those things are maligned or distorted in any way, then God is actually stripped or robbed of glory and Luther believed that the greatest sin of man is to steal glory from God. There is nothing greater than to steal glory from God. This is at the heart of the very first commandment and every other commandment given in Scripture. God receives glory when the other four souls are established correctly and only when the church looks to his word alone, to Christ alone, to faith alone, and to grace alone. And where there is a firm and decisive commitment to these, God receives, he always has and he always will, God receives great glory. Luther held firmly to the authority of scripture. He held firmly to the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the promises of God. For his firm stance in defense of those truths, the truths that brought reformation, Luther deserves our profound gratitude and respect. There's no doubt about that. This this man was mightily used to do great things, yet, listen, yet, as much as we want to celebrate a man and a movement, we celebrate the one who is behind it all, amen? By the power of the Spirit, there was reform that would reverberate through the centuries until this very day and this very moment, So let this reflection on the Reformation this morning be a timely reminder that the church of our generation needs to be reformed anew. Is Reformation still necessary? Yes, yes, because all of these truths, all of these solas are under attack today just like they were then, and they will be until the return of Jesus Christ. We desperately need many today We desperately need many men and women like Martin Luther who are willing to lift the banner of the gospel high. We desperately need a church to be the pillar and buttress of the truth and to go out into this world and and to go out to to worldly evangelicals who are claiming the name of Christ but are living a life of, of flagrant rebellion against God to go out and to shake them up, to call them out of their spiritual blindness There's a desperate need for us to go to the world, to the church, and say, wake up, wake up, wake up. The time is near, the days are evil, That the truth is under attack. Where are the faithful who will stand upon the truth and stand to declare the truth? Where are the faithful who are going to submit themselves to the truth? If we're gonna see revival, I trust you want revival if we're gonna see revival in our own lives, if we're gonna see revival in our families, in our marriages, if we're gonna see revival, listen, in our church, if we're gonna see revival in our community, if we're gonna see revival in our, our nation that has forsaken God, it's not going to happen through some kind of a, a gimmicky church. It's not gonna happen from some kind of human ingenuity, human wisdom. It's gonna happen the way it's always happened. It's gonna happen because the spirit of God will use what he's always used, the faithful proclamation of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's gonna take that truth and he is gonna take the light of that and he's gonna invade the darkness. May he take that truth for us this morning and may he invade our hearts in a fresh way, and may he set on fire our hearts and minds for him. God has always raised up faithful men and women of conviction and courage to preserve, protect, and proclaim the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. He did it then, he's doing it now. Our hope is that Jesus Christ is faithful to his promises, amen? He will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Luther held firmly to this truth. And as a result, out of darkness came light. So for us, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of danger, in the face of spiritual darkness, our hope for a growing conviction and a continual reform lies not in our strength, but in his. It lies in the fact that we trust in a faithful God. Faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone. And the great hope for us is that as we go about doing the work of God, fulfilling our calling on our lives, we are not alone. Our God is for us. Who could stand against us? Father, we believe this truth this morning. But God, where we struggle and when we struggle to believe this truth, we pray, God, with faith, help our unbelief Strengthen our faith. Press into our feeble and frail hearts. The beautiful truths, Lord, that were fought for 500 years ago. The truths, Lord, that have always been under attack. Lord, we pray that you would raise up in this generation a people, a church. Lord, may it be us. God, may it be us that you raise up, Lord, to be the faithful defenders and proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, you have brought light out of darkness. You've done it in our hearts, Lord. You've done it throughout history. And God, we long to see it again and again and again. God, our hope this morning is that you are faithful to do what you promised to do. You're faithful to do what you alone can do. And God, you have called us. You have called us, Lord, to go about this great work of protecting, of preserving, and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that our hope would be anchored in this reality, Lord, that never once, never once have we ever walked alone. Lord, you will not let the truth die. And so, for God, for all of those here who long to see people come to know Jesus Christ, who maybe, Lord, in this place are wrestling with their sin and their slavery to it. God, who are maybe in here are wrestling with their guilt and shame and are not yet followers of Christ. Father, I pray, would you show us, Lord, here a real living example of what you did 500 years ago? Would you produce reform? Would you bring light into the darkness? And would you do it all for the glory and honor of your name? We pray this in the powerful and strong name of Jesus. Amen.